Welcome to Mi'kmaq Matters, a podcast about the Mi'kmaq people and the Halibut First Nation. I'm Glenn Wheeler. And we're back in court. We had Wells and Wells versus Canada late last month, the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly of Newfoundland case. We're back in federal court on March 6th and 7th on another case regarding those denied status or losing their status in the Halibut Band. The Jerry Brake case involves a request for the court to allow a class action proceeding to deal with the rights of those denied or losing status. Unlike the Mifnan case, the Brake case will take on the point system the most infamous part of the supplemental agreement. Our guest this week is David Rosenfeld of the law firm Koski-Minsky, the lawyer on the break case. I asked David Rosenfeld to give us a preview of what will happen in court and what appears to be a joint strategy of Canada and the Federation of Newfoundland Indians to protect the point system from judicial review. It's a motion to determine whether the allegations that we have presented and the causes of action that we have, have asserted uh, can be determined in common for uh, the class of people that we're seeking to represent. And the class of people uh, that we're seeking to resent, represent is, is all those applicants who were rejected under the supplementary agreement. Um, the, the claim is effectively that the supplementary agreement is, is invalid or improper and shouldn't have been put in place, and we should revert ourselves back to the 2008 agreement. And therefore, anybody uh, negatively impacted by that 2013 or supplementary agreement um, would would then be impacted by this class proceeding. Yes. So that would include at least two distinct groups, people, the uh, 10,512 people who had cards and are losing them, and people who were uh, who were denied. Um, so those both those distinct groups would be part of your your class proceeding. That's right. And you, you might break it down a little bit further, but but yes, uh, effectively um, the people who got accepted under the 2008 agreement and 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 then subsequently were rejected and and maintained those rejections through their appeal process in the supplementary agreement, uh, and then those who got rejected out of hand under the supplementary agreement, um, those who got rejected under the 2008 agreement would not be included in the class. Mm-hmm. So if they are initially rejected under the initial process, uh, they wouldn't be um, um, class members in this proposed class proceeding. Uh, you mentioned the allegations you're making uh, about uh, about the supplemental agreement. Can you say a little bit about what you'll be, uh, what your pitch to the uh, the court will be? Uh, sure. Well, uh, there's a few components to it, um, but the first is uh, similar to the Wells uh, judicial reviews um, that existed or that got heard, I guess, last week or two weeks ago, um, uh, is that we are judicially reviewing. Um, the decision to enter into the supplementary agreement uh, 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 at all um, and the principles underlying why the government would, would do so. Um, and the allegations is that the, that agreement was put in place for improper purposes. And that effectively, um, um, numbers were the concern. Numbers and cost effectively were concerned as to why they put in the supplementary agreement. They received simply too many applications than they had anticipated, and they wanted to figure out a way to reduce that, and they came up with this um, supplementary agreement, which, which, from our perspective, imposed significant um, 
um, changes to the 2008 agreement, significant restrictions on who could be or who could prove to be a member of that, that band. I mean, ultimately, the 2008 agreement had provisions whereby they could start over if they wanted to. Um, secondarily, there are claims for breach of fiduciary duty, um, uh, charter violations, and what's called unjust enrichment. And in terms of breach of fiduciary duty, the allegations are that um, the federal government, um, which is the, the, the party that we are truthfully seeking uh, recourse against in this proceeding, um, owed a fiduciary duty to those uh, who might be impacted by uh, the 2008 and supplementary agreement. You have to recall that the FNI is the only other party to um, the 2008 and supplemental agreement. And it wasn't limited, that agreement that wasn't limited to members of the FNI. It was open to uh, anyone who wasn't a member of the FNI and simply met the, met the criteria. Uh, certainly were, were, were uh, had ties to the communities that the agreement wanted to represent. There are at least four um, organizations that I understand to have existed uh, in representing individuals from the community who were not parties to this agreement. So when you're going out and doing that, you are then making uh, an assessment uh, and determination that you are going to be, you know, representing those other, indivi other individuals, particularly since neither one of the agreements required ratification of, of anybody outside of the FNI, only through members of the FNI. Mm. Um, and so that, that, from our perspective, brings into play a, a duty to the other um, people impacted, and and by implementing this supplementary agreement, they significantly restricted the number of people that the federal government would have to support through the programs that they were putting in place. Uh, and with that comes cost savings to the federal government that we think should be um, um, disgorged, is what it's called in the legal world, but but uh, accounted for uh, in in a layman's perspective. Um, and, and there's also a breach of charter claim. I, I know I'm going on right now, but there's a, a breach of charter claim in that in that the restrictions were put in place um, violated individuals' um, rights under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and 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 similar remedies um, are sought in relation to those breaches. Yes. So there's a, at least some overlap there between the Mi'kmaq First Nations Assembly uh, case, um, and uh, I expect there will be some overlap in the response. Uh, uh, for example, in the Mifnan case, uh, uh, Steve May for FNI said, uh, yes, it's true. We There were far greater numbers than anticipated, 100,000 people, uh, many of whom had no relationship to a Mi'kmaq community, and that's the problem that the uh, the parties were, were grappling with. Um, uh, there, It sounds from the way you, you describe it, there are some Elements of your case that were not in the Mythman case. Um, who uh, in the in that case it was the FNI who was in the the driver's seat on the respondent's uh, side. Um, in your case, uh, it it appears that it might be the federal government that might be um, more at the forefront on the respondent side. Right. So so a few things. Uh, it it appears that way. I think largely because our claim uh, is directed against the federal government and not. Um, the FNI, and so our claim for damages are against the federal government, not, not the FNI or the Hollywood band that, that, that exists as well. Um, because I don't need to explain the reasoning, but, but there is a differences between what duty might be owed by the FNI and what might be owed by the government, particularly in the Aboriginal law context. Um, 
in terms of differences between uh, the Wells case and uh, I'll call it the Wells case. Uh, let's be frank about that as to the two individuals who are putting forward that case. Um, it's an individual. Each one is an individual judicial review of their application that was denied through the process. Um, in those proceedings, they, they alleged that the supplementary agreement as a whole um, um, was put in place for improper purposes, but really their focus was on the self-identification criteria and how that self-identification criteria was amended. They did not address the changes to the community acceptance components and the restrictions on geographic residence and what differences in evidence someone from outside the communities would have to provide versus someone who was remained a resident of the communities. And that is a significant component um, to the claims, and the claims of breach of, of, of charter violations. Uh, so the infamous uh, point system will be front and center in your, in your litigation. Uh, that's right. Um, uh, the suggestion was that, that for some reason that it is premature to assess uh, the restrictions on, you know, that point system that was put in place under the 2013 agreement um, was premature to go forward in the Wells proceeding. We, we disagree. We will face that argument at our class uh, proceedings motion, the certification motion. But from our perspective, the 2013 agreement is at issue in our proceeding that includes every component of the 2013 agreement. Mm -hmm. Now, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, class proceeding. Um, uh, the uh, the litigant uh, we hear about is uh, is Gerald Brake, Jerry Brake, um, but this is a class proceeding with potentially many more um, uh, plaintiffs. So, give us a, a sense of the nuts and bolts, uh, as well as the name party Jerry Brake. Uh, there would be other other litigants, and um, and how does a, a class proceeding work uh, generally? Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll clarify a little bit. But the class proceeding is 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 uh, uh, an action brought on behalf of a sorry, brought by a representative on behalf of a class. So the only party would be the representative on behalf of the class, and that that representative represents the interests of the class members. So no other class members would be parties to that um, uh, uh, litigation. But I mean by parties being the person named in the proceeding and the person being examined by the other other side. The class members have direct uh, interest and impact from that class proceeding. What would happen in a certification motion, the judge would decide whether this proceeding was appropriate uh, to proceed by way of a class proceeding. It would have to have, you know, uh, a number of class members, more than one uh, individual that's being impacted. Um, it would have to have cert appropriate causes of action. It would have to have common issues that uh, impact all of the class members. And uh, it would have to be the preferable procedure would have to be an appropriate procedure to go by way of a class proceeding. So if a judge determines that, then um, the case gets certified in whatever manner it gets certified for whatever claims the judge appears uh, or decides are appropriate. And then um, the class is then bound by uh, the proceeding as it goes forward and determines on the merits. The, the class would get notice of the certification decision and would have an opportunity to opt out, meaning, uh, hey, I don't want to be bound by this a case, I'll either bring my own litigation or bring no litigation at all. But ultimately, that individual who opts out would not be bound, uh, per se, by a direct order from from the class proceeding. Um, and then it moves forward with the representative doing all of the work on behalf of the class, effectively. Mm -hmm. So class members would not be required to testify in, in the court proceeding or provide documentation or in the traditional um, litigation aspects, that's done by the representative. Yes. 
so um, in um, in the two dates uh, scheduled, um, it'll be uh, as in the the Wells case. Uh, at this point, the lawyers are doing the talking, and then um, what are the what will be the steps after that? Uh, obviously, the the court will decide whether it's certified or not, and then um, if it is, what would be the the next steps after that? If it's certified, the next step would be notice um, to the class members, in which they would get somehow get notice, you know, by uh, advertisements or by letters or something that's determined by the court how the class will get uh, notice that this case was certified, what the case is about, and advise them of their right to opt out if they decide they don't want to be part of the class proceeding. If they do not opt out, they are automatically included in the class proceeding. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then after that, we get into the regular litigation world um, and ultimately leading to a common issues trial where we will determine the common issues. And for this case, it's likely about whether the 2013 agreement is is uh, valid and enforceable at all and whether there were breaches of fiduciary duty, et cetera. And then what remedies might, might apply um, may in be individual or may be common to the entire class. It's all dependent on the circumstances. But um, I think it's logical to assume that if the 2013 agreement is invalidated, that we'd be seeking a reconsideration of those uh, individuals who were rejected. The 10,000 people who got automatic, who, who, excuse me, who were already approved under the 2008 agreement, we would assert that they would automatically be approved if the 2013 agreement was um, set aside. Right. So then, if uh, that's that's if uh, the proceeding is certified, how about if the the answer is no and the proceeding is not certified? What happens in that instance? And Mr. Brake uh, will proceed with his case on his own, and none of the eighty thousand individuals of the proposed class will will be able to shelter any claims that they might have under Mr. Brake, and they can start their own individual case to get whatever remedy. Uh, they'd like to see, mm -hmm. and and I think that's that's highly unlikely um, that 80,000 people will will see claims against um, the federal government or the FNI. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we've only seen uh, three judicial review applications, two of those being the Wells, and one being Mr. Brake. Um, so, uh, not clear on on what might happen if the 2013 agreement uh, is set aside without a class proceeding. Um, ultimately, the same people at the table will be the FNI and, and the federal government, and no, effectively, a class representative will be there, which is what uh, this class proceeding is seeking to achieve. And do you have a sense of the timelines on this portion, on when you would hear from the court on the on your motion for certification? Um, it's, it's all dependent. I mean, it could be uh, a few weeks, uh, a few months, uh, before uh, they can render their decision, um, it's it's a, a likely a, a difficult decision to make and and a lengthy one that requires reasons from the judge. Not clear on how long or how busy the judge would be uh, in in other cases they may have. But um, uh, traditionally, three six months um, in in the my Ontario experience, meaning uh, the Ontario courts that I generally practice in class proceedings. But um, not clear uh, in this instance. Could take some time. And is there any coordination um, by the court in the Wells matters and your matter? For example, will it be just as Russell's in hearing the matter or a different judge? Um, it's a different judge. So, uh, which is, I mean, we sought to have the court uh, put these two cases 
uh, on the same track, being heard by the same judge, and we were denied. Um, I don't agree with that reasoning, but uh, I, we did not want to jeopardize our certification motion dates to try and bring that decision to a higher uh, court. Um, so uh, ultimately, the court has determined that in, it's appropriate to have these, these issues determined by separate judges in separate proceedings and separate timings. Yes. So when you when you arrive in court, it, it it's as if the the Wells matters um, are, have not been heard, and you're you're going to the judge uh, uh, as uh, that this is a this is a fresh matter, and uh, the Wells uh, Wells or Wells matters are of no um, no consequence uh, when you are before the judge. Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. But but let me let me say a couple things about that, which is. Um, as I mentioned before, the Wells proceeding addresses the issues in a different way than, than Mr. Brake does. So uh, assume that there's no class proceeding, uh, Mr. Brake or whomever initiates judicial reviews is perfectly entitled to raise their arguments in terms of, of the remedy and, and, and the breaches that are being alleged. Um, so uh, one judicial review doesn't necessarily mean another judicial review can't proceed. Uh, one of the concerns is that the federal government and the FNI have seemed to make some uh, agreement that the Wells proceedings uh, are going ahead, uh, you know, as test cases. But uh, there are many individuals who don't uh, ascribe to that and never, you know, weren't consulted with that and and don't necessarily agree with that, including Mr. Brake and some people that he represents. So um, when you have two cases that are addressing similar matters but raising different issues, uh, you know, the courts should be hearing all of the issues that are addressing it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's often, it's not often, sometimes it happens where you may have two judicial review decisions by two different judges about the same issue. Uh, they may be contrary decisions or they may be similar decisions. And if one decision comes out before the other, it'll certainly have an impact on that second judge's determination, but ultimately it's not uh, binding per se uh, on that judge. Mm-hmm. So what what part of the concern about the class proceeding was trying to remedy is that you don't have uh, significant numbers of, of conflicting decisions or that risk of conflicting decisions. Right. Um, and if there are conflicting... So, so just, to, just to continue on, I apologize, but at, at, the, at the certification motion, the Wells proceeding will certainly be an issue as to whether this class proceeding is preferable or not. They are arguing that, oh, we already have a judicial review process that's going, and, and we'll say, well, that's, you know, it's different. Uh, the judicial review process is different, and there's no ability to... Not ability, but there's no um, recourse by the parties or or non-parties to those judicial review to ensure that a remedy uh, is appropriate. Mm. It's just the F and I and the federal government go back and go talk in a room somewhere on how to address and implement that decision without anybody else necessarily being there to to discuss that, nor with judicial oversight as to whether that remedy is appropriate or not. If they don't get the remedy right per se then we're just going to end up back in court with another judicial review. So if I understand what you're saying, then you expect the uh, uh, Canada and the FNI to say, uh, Your Honor, uh, there's no reason for you to decide this matter because we already have our our test case, the Wells decision. So um, uh, that will answer the question. So that's one of the arguments you'll be facing when you're in court. Absolutely. Our our concerns are now... Now, the federal government and the FNI are choosing who they want to face and what issues they, they want to have raised and what proceeding and when, when they're the ones who are alleged to be the wrongdoers. Mm-hmm. 
And that's, that's somewhat concerning for us and Mr. Bright. David Rosenfeld of the law firm Koskiminski. We'll be live streaming the Jerry Brake case on March 6th and 7th, starting at 9.30 a.m. Toronto time, 11 in Newfoundland. View it at facebook.com forward slash Mi'kmaq Matters. We recommend earphones or external speakers for better sound quality. You can also view the Wells versus Canada case, the Mifnan case, on our Facebook page. And that's it for the show. Thanks to Allison Baker for assistance here in the studio. Celebration time used with the permission of Mi'kmaq artist Marcus Goss. Listen to Mi'kmaq Matters on iTunes or CastBox for Android. Tune in on Bay of Islands Radio on Thursday at 6 p.m. In Norris Point and Rocky Harbor, listen on The Voice of Bombay Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And in St. John's, listen on CHMR Thursday at 4 p.m. I'm Glenn Wheeler. Till next time.